Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and we are dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I've just finished recording an amazing episode with the international best-selling author Tara Moss about her new book, War Widow. At the heart of it, and it's a novel which is pretty new for us, but at the heart of it is a badass PI called Billy Walker. And Billy Walker, it turns out, is based upon a whole range of real-life amazing female figures during the Second World War. From female spies, and there were many of them as we find out, through to nurses and female police officers who were fighting organised crime during and after the Second World War. So, if you want to hear more about that and see when it comes out, should be a couple of weeks, then follow us on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2 and on Instagram at James Rogers History. But in this episode, we have Professor Laura Doan, who's discussing love, life and lesbianism during the First World War, from the way that women were treated to popular reactions to lesbianism in the media and elsewhere. Now, Laura is Professor of Cultural History at Manchester University, and her latest book is Disturbing Practices, History, Sexuality and Women's Experience of Modern War, 1914-1918. to So here is Professor Laura Doan on lesbianism during World War I. Welcome to another History Hit Live at the British Academy. Are we all ready for a wonderful evening of history? Are we all ready for a wonderful evening of romance? (laughs) I noticed downstairs there is uh, an event called Guy Candy, the Future of Desire and Romance. So I'm going to apologise to you all for being at the second sexiest event at the British Academy tonight. Prepare yourself some amazing knowledge imparted to you by brilliant people. To start off, we have uh, Professor Laura Doan and the wonderful Mr Dan Snow! Laura, join me on the stage here. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Ah, how are you doing? Good to see you all. Thank you very much for coming out on this Valentine's special. And, Laura, we've got a a wonderful professor to talk to us about some slightly more unconventional stories of love in our past. So, first things first, thank you for coming. I'm very pleased to be here, and thank you, everybody, for turning out tonight. So, we are going to talk... We've put lots of talk about the First War over the last four years. Uh, We are going to talk about the one little aspect of the First World that didn't get enough attention, 
women, the women's experience both working but also socially and romantically during the First World War. What, what have we missed? What have we missed in the last four years that you want to tell us? I, I wanted to start off by talking about this postcard that soldiers would have purchased and, and sent to maybe loved ones. But anyway, it's quite amusing. It shows um, a woman commuter getting off uh, a train and she's being met by her, uh, by um, a, a dainty woman. And the two women are in a tender embrace and, and kissing. Uh, but there's a bubble up above showing the same woman kissing a soldier. And the caption reads, this is another job the men will want back when they come home. Okay, so this uh, postcard appears on lesbian history web pages and sort of the pleasure of like the Glasgow Women's Library in the pleasure of women enjoying uh, imagining that there were lesbians living like this during the First World War. But what this uh, image is really about is uh, being worried that women are not going to give up their jobs, that they have been taking the place of men, and um, they, they won't learn that when the war is over, they have to go back and be good housewives and mothers uh, again. But is it yeah. inadvertently actually saying that the author, the, the painter, creator of the postcard is, is making a point about women not wanting to give up their jobs, doing traditionally male roles. But is it inadvertently flagging up something, which is that there was, a, there was an opp sexual opportunities available to women in the First War that might not otherwise have existed? I don't think that it's flagging up anything because um, if it was, this would be very, uh, it would not be respectable at all. I think uh, when we think about sexuality during the First World War, we have to realize that it's a culture where people do not think of that they're doing something with another body, creating who they are. It's, identity is not connected to sexuality. A far greater concern for women of the middle classes and upper classes is respectability. So if, I think if a, a, a postcard artist thought for a minute that anyone would read this in any way as just amusing, look at this woman who, who is taking on a man's job. I don't think there are any romantic overtones here that, that would have been, it would not have been read that way during the First World War. What about, you mentioned people from different classes, what were the opportunities that the war presented those women well, I to think, serve their country? Yeah, I think some of you may have read The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall. There is a scene in it where there's a, a women ambulance corps and there seem to be erotic opportunities or women looking at other women and finding them interesting or wanting to be with them. These were definitely homosocial communities. They, whether they were homoerotic communities is something we don't really know very much about. But when the Well of Loneliness was uh, prosecuted for obscene libel, the judge singled out those episodes on the Western Front where women were driving ambulances and he said, uh, this is a terrible novel. It's showing women who are addicted to this vice. And it's the one moment in the court proceedings when the author, Radcliffe Hall, rises to her feet and says, I protest. I am that author. And she was, she was uh, really insulted that the judge was, she felt, overreading. Uh, what was going on between women on the Western Front. She thought her novel uh, celebrated the, the noble service, the devotion, the patriotism, 
the hard work that women were putting uh, into being uh, in driving ambulances and tending the wounded and the dying. So she was uh, angry that the judge had singled out this, this moment and didn't see her novel as uh, in any way uh, naughty or deviant. So I think that's interesting. There are examples of women who even wrote in their diaries that they shared beds with other women doing their ambulance driving work uh, on, uh, near the front lines. And at the end of the war, these diaries were then donated to the Imperial War Museum. And my feeling is if they had thought for a minute that people would read something about those relationships, that they were doing something wrong or immoral, they would never have given those diaries to be read by, by scholars. So during the First World War, you never hear women using the terms that we use now terms that we use to uh, affix labels of sexual identity. But by around the 1950s and 1960s, those same women thinking back on their war service will, will then use words, oh, they were raving lesbians or they were out of control lesbians. That is going to happen by the 60s, but it's not on anyone's radar uh, between 1914 and 1918. And is that because the words and the identity just didn't exist? That's because people didn't think of themselves, uh, didn't think of themselves as sexual beings. They thought of themselves as being moral or immoral, respectable or lacking in respectability. And even there was one woman who was the commandant of the Women's Royal Air Force. She was told by the air minister she was doing a fantastic job. About one week later, he called her in and said, you're fired. It was the Honorable Violet Douglas Pennant. And she said, but why, why am I losing my job? And he said, because you're inefficient and you're not doing a good job. So she spent almost three decades petitioning the government to try to find, get to the bottom of why it was that she lost her job. Uh, she had connections in high places. There were committees who were supporting her. And uh, finally, um, in about 1931, a, a delegation paid a visit to the Attorney General, who was uh, an Oxbridge man who had connections to the Bloomsbury Group. So he thought about sexuality very differently than members of the delegation. And the Attorney General said, did someone in 1918 say that the Honorable Violet Douglas Pennant was a lesbian. And being a Bloomsbury, mixing with bohemian circles, he had a certain idea that you could call someone who does something with another person a certain type of creature. And the uh, Brigadier General, who was a big supporter of Violet Douglas Pennant, said, we cannot use that word. We cannot use that word. And uh, what he wanted to say is that she was thought to be someone with whom women serving under her, younger women especially, were deemed unsafe. Now, The Guardian is the only newspaper that published that she had been accused of lesbianism. So I went up to Glasgow, looked through the papers of the air minister, the voluminous papers, and he kept every shred of archival evidence. The day that he called 
Violet Douglas Pennant into his office, I turned to the day book, and it had been razored out. So obviously, he didn't want that to be remembered. And I found all sorts of other things. I, I opened up an envelope, and hundreds of white feathers came floating out into the archive room. And what that was about were people goading the air minister, say why you fired Douglas Pennant. She herself never said anything about her own sexuality. For women to even acknowledge that they understood what they were being accused of was to compromise their virtue. So sexual knowledge was dangerous knowledge. So does that make it quite difficult researching lesbian activity during the First World War? Well, it does make it... Very... doesn't leave a big footprint. No, it doesn't leave any footprint. It leaves just floating white feathers, uh, floating gently, across, wafting across the archive floor. Women leave very little in terms of archival traces, so we, we don't really have... I, I find it extremely difficult to do this kind of historical work. What we have better access to is thinking about the ways that women violated the norms of gender. A lot of the photographs and cartoons about women uh, during the First World War are mocking them for their gender performance, which they, is read as, as gender variance. If you think about the work of the ambulance driver, it already is a kind of cross-gendered activity because it requires carrying wounded men, vulnerable men, very gently, gingerly, tenderly, but it also requires the know-how of how to change a tire and do mechanical work. For women to do mechanical work was identified by the sexologists as a trait of sexual inversion. So you could read all the women who are out there driving ambulances on the Western Front. According to the sexologists, those activities would have been signs and symptoms of sexual inversion, but really what they were was gender inversion. Uh, women were changing the way they moved their bodies because of the uniforms. They were less constrained. Some of them were wearing military-like uniforms, which gave them a kind of a mannishness, and they moved their bodies in more mannish ways. So to our eyes, when we see photographs of them wearing their dashing clothing, uh, we think, oh, those look like kindred spirits. You know, LGBT communities now might look back at those photographs and think, we're finding our ancestors. But at the time, they might have been women admired for their patriotism, for their willingness to give of their time, their courage, their hard work, that sort of thing. So in the public mind, people didn't associate muscular femininity, these kind of strong women wearing these military uniforms, with being lesbians? No. And that's why I'm differentiating between what someone with a Bloomsbury connection, because I think the, the cultures around Bloomsbury is one of the first in Britain to begin to associate what two bodies do equaling what we would now understand as sexual identity. Sexologists come up with these labels, and there are a few members of the educated elite who begin to understand sexuality that way. But most ordinary people would never make those kinds of connections. What it's going to take are decades and decades of sex education. And remember, 1918, there is nothing. Uh, not even physicians know. I, I uncovered a letter uh, sent to Mari Stopes, 
she's known as a birth control um, campaigner, uh, sent by a physician, a woman physician, asking if because uh, she kissed a woman who then got married. And she's writing to Stopes saying, when I kissed that woman, could I have passed anything on to her so that the child that she had is partly my child? And Mari Stopes is like, no way, no way. But um, that, that's a question coming because even physicians felt kind of queasy, didn't know about the facts of life, didn't want to know about the facts of life because they didn't feel that was something they should know about. So people could not have gone to their physician to get that kind of information. Um, you have to remember that when Mari Stopes publishes Married Love, which is a lot about romance if you've read it, Married love encourages married couples to woo and to enjoy romance. Married love is about trying to make sure that men are not going to come back from the Western Front and perform uh, marital rape because they haven't detected when their wives are ready to, to join in conjugal love with them. Uh, so Mari Stopes is writing that and, and encouraging uh, officers and soldiers, pay attention to your wives, get a sense of their rhythms and know when they're ready and receptive and interested in you. And if you look at married love, which I did this morning, I ran a word search. The word knowledge appears 40 times. And the reason is a lot of what the subtext is of married love is Mari Stopes saying to her readers, a book that, by the way, is described as having been a bombshell in English society, uh, trying to convince ordinary readers that to possess sexual knowledge does not taint you. That, that was her big message. To possess knowledge of the sexual, even basic facts, birds and bees, the, the facts of life, human reproduction, what bodies are like, that does not make you a fallen, depraved, perverse person. And so it's really someone like Mari Stopes that begins to uh, break the floodwaters and start to encourage people to think that gaining sexual knowledge, you can do that and not compromise yourself, not compromise your respectability. And she does it through the language of love. She does it through the language of romance. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Are there any... The, the newspaper, the press, seems to be an important archive for you. Um, are there any examples of uh, lesbian activity being reported in the press by, uh, by a society that was hyper-nervous about the role that these women were playing as they moved into these factories and even quite near the front line? Well, there was one interesting case from about 1921 where a former British Red Cross nurse who had been involved with a woman or lived with a woman during the war, the woman that she was involved with uh, married, married a man named Walter Carr. Her name was Florence Harley, the, the British Red Cross nurse. Walter Carr went and paid a visit to nurse, the, nurse Harley's house, and he yells out to her, you want all the joys of married life without being married. Because remember, only married people enjoy those pleasures. And um, nurse, nurse Harley took him to court for uh, libel. And she wanted to prove to the courtroom that she was a virtuous woman. And uh, she was very angry. She felt that Walter Carr had tried to sully her reputation. So she called, they called to the stand Nurse Harley's landlady. And what the landlady said to the court is that her husband, the landlady's husband, had given the landlady permission to sleep with Nurse Harley. That was evidence of the virtue of Nurse Harley, that the landlady's husband would give permission to his wife to sleep with her in the same bed was proof of virtue beyond all doubt. Now, that is completely baffling to us today because we, and so my job as a historian of sexuality is to try to immerse myself in a moment when that does not seem baffling, to try to figure out what is the logic, what is that other world that, uh, that you could bring in someone to, to offer that kind of testimony because we think in such completely different ways. So that was my, uh, in thinking about writing about female homosexuality in the two world wars, by the 1940s, things are beginning to change. So by comparing the First World War experience to the Second World War, where you can be much more knowing about things, 
that was what is illuminating. So you need to uh, think about sexuality across time. By 1943, a woman who um, was a military officer, a medical doctor, is asked to provide guidance to the officers of the women's services to uh, what, how would you deal with incidences of, um, of, I'm not even sure they say, maybe unnatural practices. I'm not sure. It's called a special problem. And her advice, it kind of surprises people. It's nothing like a, a lesbian witch hunt. What she says to the officers is, if these women are not creating any kind of disturbance, just turn a blind eye, leave them alone. If it interferes with the essential war work, then you need to, to do something to, uh, to maybe break it up. But if they're just minding their own business, leave them alone. So for women in the 1940s, you really can't talk about lesbophobia. They're quite happy. As long as they're doing important work for the nation, love between women or relationships between women, if it's not disrupting the morale of the, uh, of the organization, it is completely fine. So lesbianism is not that threatening. I just, I, I, hearing you talk, I was, my last question, I hate to make you stop, but I think we'll have some questions from the audience. I can listen to you all night. But my last question is, as, as you're describing this, I think how traumatic it must have been for so many of these young women to be then excluded from the workplace, the, the armed forces, at the end, at the cessation of hostilities, separated, sounding, many of them sounding like they're having this extraordinary time of, of new sexual and, and professional opportunities, and then returned to a domestic setting and having no sort of choice in the matter. That, that transition must have been very traumatic for many people. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one officer during the First World War, they were worried... Um, I, I teach my students to think about gender roles, not as gender roles, but as a gender system. And I, and I talk about the elasticity. What happens in times of war is that there are far greater tolerance levels for women to take on roles of men. Of course, for men, there are more demands for hyper-masculinity. But the gender system is much more like a rubber band. It's elastic, and it really stretches. Uh, and it, after the end of the war, it goes back to being the rubber band, but it's kind of floppy. It, it, never, it never reverts to its former nice rubber bandness that it was before the war. And one officer is asked, but what will we do with these women, these women who've be, been manly for, for four years? And uh, his answer was, it's, it's all right if, if their lives become rather dull. They will have had their adventure. <laughs> oh, amazing. That was such an... In thank you so much. That was such an interesting talk. Now, we have got a microphone. If anyone wants to ask a question, I'm sure there'll be a few. Please do stick your hand up. With not, yep, okay, there we go, just down here. Thank you very much. Early on, you made a distinction about this being about um, middle class and upper class women, and actually, there was very little evidence even in that group. Um, do you have any comments on sort of the sexuality in working class women around that time? You know, that's one of the interesting comments that comes up in Dr. Letitia Fairfield's guidance document for women in 1943. The point that she makes to the officers is that. From a middle class perspective, and the officer class is coming more from the middle and upper classes, they might draw conclusions if they walk into a, a, 
a dormitory and see two women in the same bed. And what she says is, the women who are serving serving in your unit may come from working class backgrounds. For them, it is perfectly natural to sleep together for warmth. So you will be casting aspersions on women who never even thought of anything along those lines. So she she does recognize that the experience for women coming from different class backgrounds, thinking about what we could call this special problem, it's going to be very distinctive and, and very class-based. Also demonstrating how difficult it is to identify the special problem that, you know, that if, if after all these decades that have intervened. Yeah, I mean, in, in a way, the guidance document is to try to instruct officers on how to identify and once identified, how to cope with it. Many similar activities are probably going on in the first, during the First World War. The women's Royal Air Force camps around London were, they had a reputation of uh, immoral activities going on, but there was no vocabulary. There wouldn't have been a way to, to talk about it. Even if you wanted to police it, there wasn't a way to talk about it without the, it would require you to be, a, to be knowledgeable enough to be even to say that you recognized it. So to be knowledgeable is already to be tainted. So no one would acknowledge that they understood, understood it. Anybody? Yes, madam. Hi, I understand that right about 1931, lesbianism was almost made illegal. There was a piece of legislation going through Parliament to do with men and sexual practice. And somebody thought it might be an idea to wrap women into that. But it got quashed because somebody in Parliament had a particular personal interest in quashing it. But at the time, I understand, there was the thought that a lot of women didn't know about this. And if it was too widely publicised, perhaps they might like it. And I... Yeah, well, that was in 1921. Um, I've written a whole chapter of my first book on, on this particular moment. And what that legislation was mainly about was uh, to protect young women. One aspect of this conversation that I haven't drawn out very much is there were a lot of cultural anxieties about cross-age relationships. Uh, what really animated the interest to insert that clause to extend acts of gross indecency to women were anxieties about school mistresses preying on girl uh, pupils or older women preying on younger women. So it was really anxieties about cross-age, more than women of the same age. And one of the parliamentarians said, if we add this clause, basically the bill was mostly about prostitution. If we add this clause, it will make women who share hotel rooms with other women vulnerable to, to the law. And besides, we will advertise it through our legislation. And he said, I'll bet that 999 women out of every 1,000 women have never even heard of these practices. So well, there was a lot of anxiety. So around lesbianism, it's always whether to speak it or not. Is it speakable? Is it thinkable? And for, I think, the vast majority of people, it, it remains fairly unthinkable. Allegedly, Grandpa Snow had to ask his father-in-law what to do on the wedding night back in the day. We've got one last question. Yes, you, you mentioned the, the difference uh, 
where there are some who who accept um, lesbianism and, and consider it a practice to be left alone, whilst there are others who had a great anxiety about it being immoral. H how do you define the difference between those two positions and then also the position of not really knowing anything at all? Uh, what, what historical moment are you thinking about that document during the Second World War? Re really during, during the First World War, where, where there are tensions regarding the relations of... Oh, well, the immoral activities that would have concerned, let's say, women officers during the First World War would be uh, young women in the Air Force who would be going off to nightclubs in the evening with male officers. Um, there would have been... I have not come across any uh, commentary during the First World War where there is any acknowledgement that there could be immoral activities between women. It would be something that wouldn't even occur to people to, to comment on. It, it's not... It's not in their realm of existence. Uh, so where I find it is women looking back as late as the 1960s, looking back to their experiences in the First World War. Now they have a vocabulary. Oh, is that what we were? Oh, is that what it is? But that's projecting back from the 60s, looking back at the experience of the First World War. So at the time... Women were interested in proving that they were virtuous, and the way that they were virtuous is because they didn't know a thing about sex. Professor Laura Dern, that was fantastic. I'm sure you'll all agree. They're going to have a quick break now, but thank you very much indeed. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.